Hi, this is Delegate Jared Solomon, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast. We may not always agree on policy, but I think we can all agree that this is the best podcast in Annapolis. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? I am chill, man. How are you? I'm chill. Are you, are you recovered from the summer conference? It was, a, it was a big week down in Ocean City for Mako. It's a big week for Mako, but uh, a lot of time well invested. Uh, really, really good event. Good turnout. Some stuff we're going to talk about today. Today on the podcast, leading right into that, we're going to talk about conference chatter, highlights of our conference, stuff that we thought was really, really great. And then on the back end of the show, we're going to talk about the biggest takeaway from the summer conference, which is education funding. No surprise there, Michael. First, let's get into the conference. We had a great week in Ocean City. It was a great conference, record numbers. I mean, every room seemed to be full throughout that gigantic Ocean City Convention Center each and every day of the week. No, it was crazy. I mean, if we're going to do this kind of TikTok style, then, I mean, the the tone was set on Wednesday morning. And I, I mean, I've worked with Mako for a long time. I've been to a lot of these conferences. And for most of my time at Mako, Wednesday was the travel day. Some people would go to the golf tournament, but the, the convention center was sort of Vendors are setting up their exhibit booths, and there might be one or two sessions going on, but a very light agenda, a few passers-by, some old friends drop in and bring by cookies, that sort of – like, that's what Wednesday was all about. Yeah, even a few years ago. I mean, from what I remember – Four or five years ago, yeah. It it, it was like that, and, you know, that place is cavernous, so let's put it this way. If I could – if I called you across the, you know, convention center hall or something, there'd be an echo. There was just – there weren't a lot of people in there, but that's That's totally over. That is over. I mean, one thing that's happened is the department of planning is using Wednesday morning as as an opportunity to do training for people who are on local planning commissions. So they're basically taking advantage. A lot of people are going to be in town for the Mako conference. Let's make this a place for some professional training. Mm-hmm. But we've built out that day with lots of content. We'll talk about the technology expo. But even the stuff in the morning sessions, we were trying to guess as to how big to set these rooms for right. and thinking, well, maybe you know, 20, 40 people will come or whatever. I counted 160 or 170 people between two sessions on Wednesday morning. By Wednesday afternoon, people couldn't get a place to park out front. That's crazy. Yeah. So I was coming in in the afternoon from the golf tournament, helping to run the golf tournament, and I had trouble finding parking, which I couldn't believe. Yeah. I mean, that's just not a thing. Thursday, that's the day when you have trouble parking for people to be, you know, be in the far reaches of the parking lot. Wednesday is a great, great sign. And it speaks really well of the technology expo. Absolutely. So let's get into that a little bit. The technology expo, as you mentioned, it was a big hit. And what we're talking about here, Michael, we had lots of exhibitors, lots of people walking around, walking the halls, talking about stuff like drones, 5G, next generation, 911. Cybersecurity, obviously a hot topic, and Definitely. we had that covered for sure. Right. So really good session talking about, you know, about managing privacy of your data and your networks. Um, and that was jam-packed. I mean, no surprise, we've had Baltimore in the headlines, but this is not just the public sector that's under siege here. This is everybody feeling this. Right. And so, you know, the, the idea of what can you do to be prepared, and in particular, 
the idea of how are you going to be better situated if you've done your homework up front. That was a good practical session. Also, I think, you know, working the state and the and the counties working together collaboratively and the federal government, mm-hmm. yeah. that, that, that relationship is so vital. And that's sort of what I took away from listening to some of them talk about cybersecurity and the importance. But those partnerships are absolutely crucial to prepare and then in the event of an unfortunate incident to respond. Right. And, and, and you mentioned the separate exhibit floor. So So this is something we've cooked up in the last few years to focus the day of Wednesday on technology and to bring in their number of uh, the vendors are the same people who have exhibit space in the main floor. But we also have now gotten dozens of players who are basically coming to the Mako conference saying, I'm here for the tech thing on Wednesday. Oh, what's this other stuff? Maybe I'll stick around. Right. What are they setting up downstairs? (laughs) What's 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 that that other business? Right. Right. So, I mean, that's a, this is a great sort of, you know, one thing builds from the other. So if we get some, some symbiosis between the core elements of the conference and the Wednesday technology focus, that's great. And we were up to 59 different exhibitors in that area on Wednesday. Traffic was really heavy. A lot of good feedback from people who were making presentations there. And there's, you know, they got 3D printers and a bunch of different Robots, CAD systems yeah, and, and, and all, you know, GIS. Oh my gosh, the mapping stuff everywhere. So, I mean, these are all technologies that local governments are using and there's a demand for them. Uh, libraries were there in full force. We love our libraries. We do. We do. So, so anyway, that, that, that has turned into a really good day. This theme is going to stick. and I, I like that a lot. Okay. Going into Wednesday a little further, we did a live recording of this podcast with the U.S. Census, Michael, and with the Maryland Department of Planning. We had Secretary Rob McCord there. And I have to say, I mean, it was a great turnout. I think it was a great conversation. We really talked about the importance of the census, why we highlight this so much, why it's so crucial that we be prepared. And not only was it a great session during the recording, but we also had a great Q&A after and a lot of great comments, a lot of great questions. I think people took a lot away from that, and that's the goal. Well, uh, I mean, if, if the proof is in the pudding... We are all but certain to have a follow-up session talking about census issues and best practices at our December event this fall. I, there's, there's, I don't think there's any doubt at all that there is a demand for this and there's a substance to talk about. So that that panel is already building itself. Absolutely. So I, I mean, I love that. I love when we come out of a room saying that was good. What's next? Absolutely. And that's, that's terrific. So a lot so, of great best practices. I mean, I heard a lot about innovative ideas that counties are implementing at the local level right now, just to trying to make right. sure that people understand and that they can reach each and every resident. Right. And for some places, it's disparate populations who are hard to reach geographically. Right. For some places, it's your residents who are uh, suspicious of government or suspicious of things that come in the mail. Okay. That's its own challenge. Right. For some places, it's a language barrier or a cultural barrier. All of these are part of this puzzle. That conversation brought a lot of it together. I was happy with it. Absolutely. So Wednesday, as we said, jam-packed. That those were just a couple of the highlights. Let's get into Thursday, Michael. Typically, Thursday, as you said earlier, is is go go go, busy busy busy. Definitely. Now Wednesday has turned into the same thing, but Thursday, much of the same. Great sessions. Again, literally, you walk down the hall to these 
workshops, the educational workshops that we have, and each and every room is full. And I saw people, you know, right. flowing into these rooms at standing sure. room only. So many great topics. But Thursday again, fantastic turnout. Yeah, I mean, it's I and mean, it's one of those things where we have a challenge of we set up these rooms and we say, okay, well, you know, 120 seats is fine. We'll hopefully have 50, 60 people, and we had people lining the walls and out into the hallway and, de- and several different breakout sessions, even when there's multiple things going on. Right. We had convention center staff time. wheeling yeah, right, chairs right. into the room. So, I mean, that's, wild, that's wild. a good problem to have. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it speaks to the voice that we've been able to get out to people saying, you got to be here for this stuff. Um, I had a great moment. We do a, a sort of good government book club and we had a, a session of people talking about this book, which was about understanding the public sector mission using terms of the private sector. And that was interesting, but almost everybody in the room said, this is as if it were built to go right after our keynote speaker. We had Simon Bailey. He was great. Who, who shows up and just crushes it with a big audience. Mm-hmm. And then a, you know, a couple dozen of those people come right to the book club and they're spending an hour talking about the same mentality that he was. It was, it, it was a perfect match. We didn't plan it that way, but we couldn't have planned it any better. Um, but through the day, it was just it was just segment after segment that, that linked together well. Um, we went back to the Performing Arts Center with um, with a session talking about school funding, mm-hmm. and and that was a pretty big event, a, a big crowd to hear Dr. Kerwin and other speakers talking about the next steps in school funding. Yeah, so we had Dr. Karen Salmon, Superintendent of Schools, Council Member in Montgomery County, Craig Rice, both members of the Kerwin Commission, and of course. It was moderated by County Executive Barry Glassman from Hartford County, who sits on the funding work group of the Kerwin Commission. This session, the really the focus, Michael, was on the blueprint bill. We've talked a lot about that. It's about why the commission's work is so important, what they've done so far, and sort of the plan moving forward. And, and also, I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that if your vanilla audience member at the MAKO conference is a county elected official, it's almost a flip of the coin whether he or she was in office a year ago this right, time. absolutely. So we had big turnover in the 2018 elections. So it makes sense that Britt Kerwin shows up and Dr. Salmon and Craig Rice all show up and they were talking substantially about sort of the vision for what are we trying to accomplish What's, you know, what, what's the problem we're trying to solve? What are we going to do with getting our kids college and career ready? Why do we want to do it by the 10th grade? What's it mean to have a better ladder for teacher advancement? Like, I think there were a lot of people who had been missing those pieces. Right, We've right. talked about money, talk about some of the goals and objectives along the way, and the money conversation will follow and and has it ever. That's going to be a recurring theme. And, you know, Council Member Craig Rice represents MAKO. He's one of the representatives on the commission, and he did emphasize, hey, we are working to make sure that we avoid this winners and losers scenario. And he made a point to say that he understands budgets. He understands he's a county elected official. This is going to be a huge lift and that they are working to make sure that everybody gets a fair shake here. And I think the audience in, you know, appreciated hearing that. And it was certainly good to hear from our perspective as well. I think so. And, and I mean, he's been, he's been a very diligent representative. Uh, I, I think, you know, the commission is, has been doing a whole bunch of work. And right now the, the baton has been passed to this smaller work group. County Executive Glassman is working in that group. And that's, you know, that's the accelerated nuts and bolts effort going on right now. But you, you can tell 
in that building, every time there's a conversation about budgets and school funding, there's a great deal of gravity on that issue right now, and, and understandably so. Yeah, and I had the opportunity to even go on the Anne Arundel County Economic Developments podcast, and we even talked about it there, right? So sure. everybody's right. talking about this. And by the way, I think we may have a really interesting idea moving forward to do something with all these podcasts that we talk about here, uh, we've talked about, and, and get them all down to Ocean City, and, and that might be something we'll talk about in the future. Yeah, I, I, I think we got plans for this because there's there's an opportunity for a, a different kind of media presence at the conference than we've had in the past. So, yeah, to to be continued, but I think we'll hash out details. I I think we'll cook something up. Yeah, stay tuned there. And quickly, Michael, the Taste of Maryland. Uh, this is always a great time. This is a cornerstone event of Thursday. Great local fair. All the counties come. They bring food and drink, and they really get to highlight what's going on back in their counties. And it was also very, very busy. Right, a whole whole bunch of you know local vendors and your local breweries and wineries, uh, but then you know lots of snacks and treats and and chips. And there was one guy who had the Smith Island ball cake oh, balls. I mean, there were people. Basically, just you know, grabbing one another by the arm, saying, "Get back to this guy before he he runs out." The candies in one corner and so forth. People are lining up for those. Yeah. So, and oysters are shucking oysters live. That I mean, it's always I, cool. You know, so, anyway, it was it's 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 a good scene, and the vibe in that room is terrific. Every you know, a lot of shaking hands and slapping of backs and so forth. I mean, that's part of an event like this too, course, right? You spend course. you know, you spend your whole day sitting there, you know, writing with your pen and taking notes an hour after hour session and so forth, you know, go go try the, the local craft beer. That's good, too. So that was Thursday. We get into Friday. Again, it's still packed. There are still people running around everywhere. Again, excellent, excellent educational sessions. Everything, Michael, from agritourism, affordable housing, planning and zoning, lots of hot topics in the news, stuff that counties are dealing with each and every day. I really enjoyed, Michael. I was in for the agritourism session, and, and that was fantastic. Well, that that's one of those topics that won't quit. I mean, the demand for and the challenges in providing agritourism are are tricky enough. This And, like, you didn't look around that room and see six or eight counties who are interested and everybody else takes a pass. I mean, this is Montgomery Absolutely. and Baltimore Absolutely. County and Anne Arundel. I mean, this is big jurisdictions, as well as the more rural, more deeply agrarian counties are mm-hmm. committed to this. But all sorts of different stuff, and boy, I mean, you someone mentions host a wedding in that room where everybody's the talking w, about, it, and it's just it's, suddenly like the whole room goes nuts. But it, yeah. so it's it, there, there's a huge demand for this kind of stuff. It's a big economy of its own, and that like that brings together almost every challenge in local government. You have to worry about public safety and public health and so forth, but you want to find accommodations and build your local economy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's threading all those needles at once. Uh, I don't know. We could probably do an agritourism session at the next three conferences in a row, and it will be standing room only and relevant and timely. Absolutely. So. As the agriculture <laughs> industry continues to evolve, this is going to continue to be something you know that we need to deal with, yeah. and, and I think benefit from as well. Uh, I mentioned affordable housing, Michael. This is a hot button issue. This can really polarize and paralyze communities. So timely to have a session like this. And this is another one where it's not just a few jurisdictions in yeah. the room, it's everybody, right? And I don't think, I don't, it's also one that I don't think you, I don't think you solve it. Like you don't come to a one hour session and come away saying, okay, you know, we've, we, now we can just wash our hands of that. We're done. Right. 
but um, but it's it, it's tricky, and you you've got to be sharing best practices, and whether it's things you do in your own zoning code and and your comprehensive plan, or whether it's making informal agreements with the development community or or whatnot. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to approach this. And I mean, that's one of the things Mako's really good at is here's a fast growing jurisdiction. Here's another jurisdiction that has some stagnation. Here's a place that's growing in one place and not in another. They're approaching things different ways. And you can take bits and pieces from each of them and say, okay, I'm starting to see how to approach this problem, which I thought was unsolvable. That's that we're good at that. I yeah, think. getting everybody in the room, getting everybody to the table and talking this stuff out. That's what this conference is all about. And then, Michael, I was really, really impressed with the turnout. Standing room only actually, for House Speaker Adrian Jones at the Women of Mako lunch. She gave a really great speech. You know, she talked about her path to where she is now. She called on the women in the audience to encourage more women to get into politics and take on leadership roles. And I should mention, when we say Women of Mako, it's not just for women, right? I mean, anybody who's interested can show up, and they, they certainly they did. They certainly did. That was uh, that was a, a not even, I don't know what the word is beyond, like two or three clicks beyond standing room only, because the standing room was taken, and then the next row of room was taken. So, I mean, this was, this was an all-hands-on-deck sort of event. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, it, it makes sense. Uh, she's, she's new to the role as the speaker. There's a lot of people who, who, who want to sort of kick the tires and find out, okay, who, what's she going to be like right. to deal with in Annapolis and so forth. What are her priorities? Right. right. And so, I mean, but she shows up and just you know, flexes her thoughts on leadership and advancement. I mean, okay, so you read the room, it's the women of Mako, and you say some things about, I mean, she's the first woman as a presiding officer in this state. That's noteworthy. Right. But she's quickly past that and starting to talk about priorities and next steps and here's her vision for things and so forth. So if you were looking for a sense that there's a reason she's the new speaker, I think you came away from that room feeling like, oh, I get it. I get it. I got it now. Right. right. So, and, 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 you know, she too drifted into talking about school funding because that's what everybody in and around Annapolis is doing. Uh, she had thoughts about some of the sort of ways and means to get to that, get, get, get to some of those goals. And that, I think that also set up some of the conversation that has continued since then. Yeah, and that's another point we'll get to in the back half of this episode. And, you know, back to our education theme, we talked earlier about the Kerwin Commission general session was sort of the work that's been going on and just catching people up to everything that's been happening so far. The Budget and Finance Officers Affiliate on on Friday held a session that was just really the nitty gritty on what this looks like for county budgets. And... The name of the session was A Perfect Storm for County Budgets. Spoiler, yes. <laughs> and admittedly, it's not just about Kerwin. There are a lot of reasons why our budget folks are concerned. We have liabilities, you know, long-term liabilities. We have a recession on the horizon. But this massive new commitment to education certainly makes them nervous, Michael. And I think another standing room of only event, but this is one that folks were talking about and continue to talk about as we sit here the week after. Definitely. And I mean, that... We didn't choose that title Perfect Storm out of thin air. I mean, the reason we chose that is 
just like you have, have to have multiple weather elements come together to create that true perfect storm that, that makes, you know, all the ships go upside down and so forth. The idea that we're already sitting with a state structural deficit. There are indications that the economy may be looking at a hiccup before too long and the state is teetering on making a big spending commitment. It's that all three of these things are happening at the same time. What do you do with that and how do you build around it was was sort of the thrust of this session. I don't think anybody in the room was saying it's a bad idea to invest in schools or we shouldn't be planning for the future. Absolutely. It, it was just a matter of, okay, you know, let's let's actually like run a ledger here. And once you start doing that, I mean, you know, you, you, you put some you put some some sharp cookies at the front of the room, some veteran budget people and you know, the guy who does the chief forecasting for the state, and you basically just say, Okay, you know, run this forward a year. What happens if this, what happens if that? You you don't have a whole lot of room to move. So, I, I mean, some people left that room saying, boy, this is a big problem. I think most people left the room saying, that's a real challenge. This makes it tricky. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's the job It's the job that everybody got in the room to do. Absolutely. So, and, so, and, yeah, yeah. No, nobody wandered into being a county commissioner or a county council member by accident and, you know, had no idea that it was going to require tough decisions. Absolutely. And, and the, the point that you made – you know, that no one in that room thought that necessarily this, any of this was a bad idea, but these are not policy folks. These are budget folks. Their job is to look at the numbers. We purposefully did this, you know, as a spinoff of the earlier session. Let's talk about the policy. Let's talk about why this is important. This was, let's look at the numbers. So that's a really important point to make. I thought the presenters did a fantastic job. There were some interesting tidbits that came out of this session. We had Robbie Sandlis, the treasurer for Harford County. One of the things that stuck with me was, you know, he said that their portion, the County, the local portion of what would be required to, to to meet the new Kerwin mandates would be equivalent to the county's annual budget for public safety, community college, and the public library all combined. And to me, you know, that was sort of a the room was in shock for a second. Like, wow, that that is a, a massive new commitment, right? I mean. That's what's been missing in the Kerwin debate. And we saw elements of that through this conference, and it sounds like we're going to see more and more of them as this conversation continues. But you need to frame this in a way that people can understand. Right. Because if you're if you're a veteran budgeteer, you might be used to saying talking about mills, or you might be, you know, used to talking about, well, this is only a three point three percent increase in that blah blah blah. You you can lose people along the way. So saying we gotta we gotta find the equivalent of all the money we send to all these core functions just to keep pace with the new expectations in education funding, right. you can open some eyes that way. Yeah, you can really set the the tone that way. I also thought it was interesting, you know, we had the chief economist in the room, as you said, for the state, you know, and talking about, well, potential ways we could pay for this. And obviously, you know, we always talk about, well, we'll tax the rich, we'll tax the millionaires. And I thought he did a good job of saying, yeah, we could do that. The problem is there just aren't enough of them to fund Kerwin, right? And we'll get into more of this later on the back end. But I thought that was an interesting takeaway, too, of potential ways you could look at this and and ideas that are, are floating around. But that's one that I think when we talk about we'll just tax all the rich people, there just aren't enough of them really to fund what we're talking about. Right. This is going to be this is going to be like one of those schoolyard games of Simon Says or something like that, where you start with a whole laundry list of different ideas. And over the course of round after round of, of vetting and discussion, you find out that the list 
declines and shrinks and narrows and gets focused and so forth. That's that's how it's supposed to go. That's fine. I mean, a lot of this was easy to see coming, and we've done that. I think we'll talk through a little bit on, about on the, on the back end, but it, it's good to have the budget people frame that a little bit kind of absent from, you know, we're not going to talk about education policy. We're just talking about how do you build a budget around where we are and where we're going. And of course, Michael, I got to say, Mako, we have been extremely lucky, knock on wood, the last few years. I mean, we have had beautiful, beautiful weather for the cornerstone event of Friday after you've been all day (laughs) writing your notes and you're, you know, you're you're focused on what you're doing. We have the crab feast on Friday right. evening. All week it was humid. It was it was raining. It right. was hot. Showers and we you know puddles up in yes, the, into the yes. into the awful. Um, and then you know oh. about you know Friday noontime it basically clears out and by the time of the crab feast it's eighty two degrees. Oh my gosh! A few clouds in an otherwise gorgeous sunny sky. Nice breeze. Just. just Perfect. <laughs> yeah, the crabs were tasty. Another great event. Right. It was jam packed, and and literally everybody's there. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's the nature of the Mako Crab Feast, and yeah, that we 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 know we've got guests just for that event, and that's great. But it's it's a good way to punctuate a, a week of doing a whole lot of work. And then, of course, Saturday. We can't forget about Saturday. Saturday morning, really excellent, excellent sessions, Michael. We were up early. We had some really great sessions. And and one of the big ones was issues relating to volunteer and career firefighters, right? This This is an issue that's popping up in each and every county. It's becoming more and more difficult to recruit volunteers, and counties are in a tough spot. Yeah, Great session there, jam-packed. Right, and and getting a sense that this is this is one of those issues that may not be uh okay we go to annapolis and fight it out in a bill hearing Mm -hmm. i mean this may just be this is the change in demographics and the these are the realities for your your fire companies so your relationship with them has to change and here's how to work that through with the people you've got now the people you want tomorrow and how do you keep things on track with whatever combination of professional career versus volunteer versus private you know private companies who supplement and so forth mm-hmm. and the situation's not the same in any series of counties but this is a pressure point in lots of places. This bubbled up from the membership. It was a, we got to talk this stuff through. And two back-to-back sessions on Saturday were well attended and I think really important. Yeah. And it's like you said earlier, I mean, this is, you know, these conversations are probably not going to be the easiest conversations. So getting people in to say, this is what we did here and it seemed to work well and exchanging these ideas. I mean, this is definitely the way to approach this situation. And sometimes when you talk about, and here's what they tried there and let's learn some lessons because that rollout didn't work right and you need to bring people you know whatever you bring people to the table sooner or whatever you, you do takeaways that way too so anyway it's it, it's it's a relevant topic still timely and and pretty important and another thing that i'm very proud of that mako does at our conferences we did this twice at this summer conference training for hands-free cpr and how to respond to someone when if they're having an opioid overdose administering naloxone not only do you get the training michael but you get certified when you walk out of that room we left with hands-free CPR kits as well as naloxone. I keep it in my car. You never know when you're going to need it, but I think, you know, it is what it is, right? We have this problem and you need to be prepared for it. You need to know how to respond, how to react. And this is just super important stuff. And I'm really proud of Mako that that we do this and we educate our folks in this way. Well, there's, there's an awful lot of people who are aware that the drug problem has hit their community and they know somebody or they know a family or they've been to an event or, you know, sadly, 
They've probably been to a funeral. Sure. And so the idea of I can be part of the solution, I can carry this with me, and just while I'm attending an event I was coming to anyhow, I can go to this session and come away with some training that I can be part of the solution on site. I mean, there are some people who are going to say that's the most important thing they got out of this whole conference. And sure, you can get that somewhere else. You can go schedule time and take a half day off work and do this or that. Um, the idea of fine, we've got the, we've got health officers in the room. They're willing to do this. So let's, let's gear it up and let it's a popular offering. Uh, I hope we continue with it. Absolutely. And then I was in a fascinating session, Michael, on community choice, energy aggregation. This is an issue that popped up during right. the last session of the General Assembly. It's really an interesting topic and I think some good points on both sides, but it seems like this certainly could be a way not only to save money in the future, but also to, quote unquote, go green, create yeah. you know cleaner energy in your community. I think the, the idea of the local government saying we'll step in for the people in our neighborhood who, you know, who, who decide they're okay being on board and okay, let's go out and let's buy our electricity together. We'll hire a consultant to negotiate the best price or work through all these complicated technical offerings and stuff. And if we want to get greener energy and we want to get it to be all wind or all renewable, we can do that as a community. If we just want to save money, that's fine. This to me is the classic, the kind of topic where you have the bill hearing in Annapolis, the bill gets gummed up. This deserves more conversation. So let's have pro and con mm-hmm. come down and hash this out and we'll spend an hour on it and try and sift through, okay, does this make sense? And what, you know, what maybe do you need to change in the bill or in the proposal to, to make it more balanced and so forth? It's a healthy thing. If we can continue that policy debate and sharpen it for next time around, I think we've provided a service there too. Yeah. And you could see some of the kinks being ironed out as that session went yeah, on yeah, right? exactly. over the over the hour. So I think made a lot of progress there. That's excellent. And at Michael, you know, we've talked about some of the highlights. Obviously, there were a ton of educational sessions, a ton of other stuff going on. You can see all of that on the Conduit Street blog. We have summaries there. We've written articles about each and every session. So if you're interested, we'll put a link here on this episode. But on Saturday, the the closing event was the governor's closing address. And Michael, that was a well-attended session in the Performing Arts Center at the at the Convention Center. The governor talked about a number of different topics. One of them, of course, was education. But we heard him talk about highway user revenues and still fighting for the full restoration there. Obviously, those were cut by 90% some years ago. It was a big deal to yeah, counties, still right? A big, I mean, we've, we've made progress, and the governor's been part of that. For him to say he's still committed to get on the right path, I think that's well-received by the county community. And you know, we don't, we don't want to be left out of that future conversation. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's a good thing. I mean, he also you know, made, made a, an announcement about rural broadband, which there's an awful lot of communities that are deeply underserved by the private market right now. Hot topic. So, so for him to show up and say he's got some ideas of, of making big gains there and making some commitment toward that, I mean, that's well received. We'll see the details. That'll be in the budget and possibly in legislation. So we'll see some more on that come January. Right. But I mean, August is not a bad time of year to say, here's what we're aiming for next go round. And, and uh, Governor Hogan delivered there too. Mm-hmm. We also heard him talk about transportation, the Bay, tackling crime. Obviously, that's been a, an issue that he's been talking about a lot lately. And then, Michael, he did say he plans on introducing his school construction bill. That's about a $2 billion bill would take care of most county projects that I think if they were ready to go. So a lot of a lot of information there, a lot of different topics. But 
again, the big takeaway back to our theme here. The big takeaway was Kerwin. Kerwin, right, right, <laughs> and and so that that's fine. The governor's going to talk about the school funding plan. It's it's on everybody's lips. It's on everybody's mind. So he contributes to this conversation and frames it a little bit. I think this is a topic that. The conversation got started at the Mako conference. It's continued since then. Let's dig into that maybe on the back half. All right. So let's take a break there. When we come back, we'll talk about what the governor said, the reactions to it, and then a lot of the other stories that have been in the news, a lot of the other ideas that, as you said, I think the, the conversation started at the conference and it continues now. So we'll get into all that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we left off talking about the governor's closing address at MAKO, and we said he made some comments about Kerwin. And I want to get into that a little bit. The first thing, the big takeaway, I know our listeners read the news. This is the big one. The governor said, look, we understand that this is a big, a big idea. There's a lot of money on the table. The governor said there will be no tax increases to pay for Kerwin. He laid out what fully implementing Kerwin White might mean for Marylanders, Michael. And we're going to talk about exactly some of the the numbers that he 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 told to our, our conference and what it might mean moving forward. But as you said, this this contributed to that conversation that started at Mako. So let's get right. into that a little bit and let's talk about what he said. So I, I mean, I think the first observation is. If you're the reporter covering this this speech, you skip past where the governor you know, says, "We know this is an effort that's been underway, and we know that there's a group that's that's giving some thought to how do we make advances in our schools." Sure. I mean, I think I think you know the governor framed that in a way that some people are going to be mad about. Um, and you know he, he he may have sort of dismissed the amount of time and effort that's gone into these proposals. Mm-hmm. So there there were some people that saw that as incongruous. But I think what the governor was getting to is the side of this where he's got concerns is on the spending side. That what it's going to cost to do these things, sort of irrespective of how meritorious the arguments are, the the price tag is potentially staggering. Sure. He wanted to frame that debate and and sort of, I don't know, I guess sort of draw a line in the sand and say, we can't raise the revenue to do all this stuff. Sure. Um, so, I mean, he, he, he got into some specifics on that front, but I think that was his essential message was, you know, we may, we may have a want list, but there are some things we we probably won't be able to do because the cost is just overwhelming and and understand that he like everybody else is looking at the latest cost estimates from this commission mm-hmm. are now closing in on a year old they were last sort of issued back in January of 2019 it's been a lot of talk since then mm-hmm. we've seen the legislation pass for the sort of first couple rollout years We've seen the legislature say they'd like a different timetable for the 10-year rollout. Right, truly a 10-year phase in. So so 
we know this stuff has softened, but there's no new data on that. So, I mean, the governor's reacting to the latest proposal, even though that proposal might have already outlived its shelf life. Is that fair? That's fair. And I, I want to get into a few of these specifics, Michael. So again, we've mentioned this many times. This is estimated to be about $4 billion a year when, when fully implemented. Half of that money would be borne by the counties, we think. That's traditionally how we've done things. But again, you know, they haven't right. said that. For, for, yeah, for, I mean, for the moment, we don't know because right. the work group right now is spending time on that stuff. So I think the governor was saying, you know, absent some sense that we offload these costs to all local governments, what would it take for the state to, to shoulder this? And he tried to put it in a framework with some of the revenue sources that people are most familiar with. Okay. So Michael, <laughs> first, personal income tax. The governor said that implementing Kerwin fully would result in a 39% increase in the personal income tax. Break that down right. for us. Where does that come from? Well, I, mean, I mean, I think I think all he's saying there is not necessarily that we have to change every bracket by this or that. I think he was just basically saying we bring in something like $10 billion a year in income taxes and personal income taxes. Mm -hmm. So if you needed another 3.8 or 4 billion a year and you were going to do it by way of income taxes, you got to bump that number up by almost 40%. And that's, that's just arithmetic. Um, it does have a certain, you know, sticker shock though, right? I mean, sure. a 40% increase in income tax rates is a, is a big deal. And this proposal is a big deal. It is a, it is a, major reckoning of what the state owes its school children and our school systems. So that's, I mean, that's in keeping with the scope of the recommendations. Um, it's just one way of framing it. So, sure. so, you know, some people are going to say, oh, he's singling things out and making it a scare tactic. It's basically just math. Um, and the same thing, everybody's familiar with the sales tax, right? So and that was a big number too. Right. So we have, I mean, we have a, a sales tax of basically six cents on the dollar, a 6% sales tax. And he came up with a number. It would take an 89% increase. So we'd have to go to, you know, 11 cents or 11 and a half cents or something of that nature in order to accomplish all the dollars for, for the Kerwin plan. Right. So if we did it all through that, that through right. the sales tax. So if right. we did it all through sales tax, it would be a big change, right? Six cents to 11 or 11 and a half or something like that. That's a big deal. Sure. Almost double the tax. And then property taxes, a, a humongous number. And this is a this big is percentage. One, right. 535%. And this is one where we don't really look at it like right. this. So so that number is obviously right. crazy. Right? Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's tricky on one, one hand, and that is people are familiar with what they pay in property taxes generally, but your property tax is mostly a local revenue. Right. But you know, if you're paying a collective rate of about a dollar ten or so, that's because eleven cents of that is from the state and about a dollar or so is from your county or your county and municipality put together. Mm -hmm. So you know, the idea of, oh, this is going to be a 500 and something percent increase in your property tax. What that was saying is a big, we'd have to increase the state, state property portion, tax right. by fivefold or more. And, and that's basically true. A, a penny on the state sales tax, or excuse me, a penny on the state property, property tax statewide would get you in the neighborhood of $80 million. And so if you wanted to find $4 billion, you're in the neighborhood of $0.50. Cents. So yeah, you're, you're increasing the state rate by fivefold or thereabouts. Yeah, that's a big increase. Um, 
I mean, I'm not discounting the effect of a 50 cent increase in everybody's property tax. Sure. That would be a big deal. Massive, right. So um, is it, but I mean, so let's, let's take all of these three things in context. Is it at all likely that the plan for Maryland would be number one to finance absolutely everything in the Kerwin plan through new tax revenues and ignore whatever growth there is in our tax bases and whatever economies you might have through other cuts or other offsets? That's probably not realistic. Okay. And number two, would you do it through any one single source? Which is exactly what right. these numbers that's what these, mean. That's what these illustrate. And so these are extreme illustrations. Mm-hmm. So I think they hold water mathematically, but practically it's not like anybody's actually looking at any of these three things and saying, yeah, that's actually on the table. We're going to do this whole thing with a state property tax increase. I mean, who knows what could be on the table? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. But as a practical matter, it's not like these are the leading candidate ideas and and so that's you know it's it's somewhere in between as far as as far as trying to do a pinocchio counter or whatever okay and then the other big headline grabber was the governor said that you know fully implementing kerwin would create an 18 billion with a b dollar deficit and result in a $6200 tax hike for the average family over the next 5 years so so again those are eye-popping numbers, and you know every reporter in the room is scribbling down on their notepad, and that right. made it in every newspaper, right? right. So I think, um, I mean, this is another one where the the math is relatively sound. It's just okay. So you have to you have to follow a bit of a stutter step here. Um, Washington, D.C. tends to score their things on a 10-year basis, and we saw that when they were doing tax reform where they're talking about health care plans and so forth. Right. In Maryland, we tend to score things as one-year effects. We look at the annualized effect. When we talk about the Kerwin plan, we've said that number 3.8 billion a, zero, a zillion times. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because that's the final annual number. It's not 10 years that add up to 3.8. It's that you eventually get up to a fully phased-in 3.8 billion per year. And that's the new right. funding. So each an, and every year. Yeah. So another way to look at this is to say, well, we look at our budget forecasts on a five year basis. The state does that. And when they look at how, what kind of a structural balance do we have for next year? What's our forecast for next year? We typically look five years out. So a five year window is the usual framework for looking at where is our bottom line. So that's the idea. If if all you did was commit to this new spending and you didn't have any commensurate revenues that came along with it, you didn't have any cuts in the vanilla budget between here and the end of that five-year period, period you'd be racking up a year-by-year deficit that cumulatively gives to $13 billion. Right. So that, I mean, so that's arithmetic – um, it's not outlandish. It's just a different way of presenting. I mean, where we are now is we know next year there's a structural problem that closes in on billion. It gets a little bit larger each year after that. That's assuming we don't make structural changes. But if you make a structural change in year one, that's embedded into the base for the subsequent years. So, right. You know, would we really just pass a spending plan and have an unbalanced budget? Constitution says we can't do that. So we'd have some solution for year one and then for year two and then for year three. But the reality is if you just look at these 
new spending commitments on top of today's forecasts, maybe you sprinkle in a little pessimism about the economy, you can rack up a big eye-popping number like $13 billion. So you get 13, and then this forecast does assume that the state's going to face a budget deficit of approximately $5 billion by fiscal 25. So 5 plus 13 is that $18 billion number. Again, you know, this is assuming a lot of things, but, you know, when you do look at the fact that we are likely to have some sort of economic downturn, we don't know how big or when that's going to happen, but, you know. Back to this perfect storm thing. Exactly. Back oh. to the perfect storm, right? Okay. So so that those were the eye-popping numbers the governor said. I really wanted to break down what those meant, and I'm glad that we did, and hopefully that puts it into context because, you know, those numbers are being thrown around and people are arguing about what they mean. And so, Well, I mean, I think there's, there's more to talk about here because mm-hmm. the process of getting from here to Kerwin is still a map that you know maybe maybe we've done a lot of work on where the x is where we think that 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 pot of gold at the end is and we know there's a path from here to there but the the process of getting here to there is not terribly well defined um you know you can you can say i'm unwilling to do this by way of all tax increases and the governor has said i'm not raising taxes of anything like those magnitudes to do it okay um, you also have sort of, you know, what we've heard from, you know, what we've heard from the advocates mm-hmm. who are basically saying, yeah, this is, this is our calling. And what I know of and what I hear from the Kerwin Commission, we've got to achieve these goals. So let's find a way to get from here to there. Right. And if we invest in education now, we'll get some economic benefits down the road. That's the argument. That's a lot of what we've been hearing in response to, to what the governor said, right? And that's, that, that, that's part of it. So, I mean, this has elements of what we've seen, you know, in, in Congress moving in the direction of dynamic scoring and so forth. But I mean, there's, there's some logic to this argument that if we make massive investments in our students over time, those students become our workforce. And if our workforce is more highly trained, more ready to go and able to move into more productive and higher paying jobs, that's good for our local economy. You know, some of those people are going to stay here and start businesses or build businesses and so forth. So that'll be good for the local economy. And that means, wow, there's a bigger tax base to support whatever we're doing, including the funding of education. Sure. So, so, I mean, there's a, there's, a re, there's a sort of cyclical element to this. Okay, that makes some sense. Um, that's one of the elements here. There's, I mean, there's no sense that this comes back, you know, right away. Right now. So, so you don't make a spending spending commitment in 2022 and think, well, in you know, the next year, boom, suddenly our problem is solved because all these you know smarter kids are out there making big money. That's a. It takes time. Whatever the yields are going to be. But in the, you know, in the meaningful term, you also, I think, it, it, it's. It's very appetizing to say, okay, we don't need to do those big tax increases. We can find something else. Mm-hmm. So among the many things Speaker Jones spoke about in talking to a giant room at the conference was, yeah, it's time to look at our tax system and see where do we have credits and, and other, you know, other, um, tax offsets that somebody's benefiting from that might be obsolete or out of date or not worth it anymore. So maybe there's a way that we can close some loopholes and change the tax structure, not necessarily go after the rates, but go after the, you know, the, the application of taxes sure. in, in a way to bring in some more revenues. 
And because uh, you and I are who we are, right. we, we dug into that a little bit, right? We took a look at what could be on the table here. And this is, we'll put this on the blog too, but this is a report from the Department of Legislative Services, right? This is publicly available. Yeah, I think I think um, it's a state report. It might, might actually be the Department of Budget DBM, Management okay. who, who, who prepares it. But the tax expenditure report is, is sort of a run through of all the different things that are embedded in the tax code that effectively reduce revenues. It's a way of reporting those things. They don't show up in the budget. Right. When you spend tax taxpayer money in the budget, you say we're spending the money on A, B, and C. We're hiring these people, et cetera, et cetera. This is meant to be a complimentary report saying, well, because so-and-so got a tax break, that's as if we were spending money on that industry. So you should reveal that somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's a way of looking at what's the menu of things out there where people are getting tax breaks or companies are getting incentives and so forth. I I would say like you can get in there and you can find page after page of items that are 0.2 million and negligible and so forth. If you want to start talking big money though, these things sound less and less like the obsolete, past their time, nobody cares. Uh, you're getting into weightier tax policy. So, you know, the difference between a tax loophole and thoughtful tax policy um, is a pretty big deal. And one of them sounds appetizing. Let's close loopholes. But what if that loophole is like, we don't charge sales tax when you buy medicine? Right. And right? that's one of, you know, when we looked at this, <laughs> Where, you know, you, like you said, there's a lot in there that are 0.2 million, 1 million, and maybe you can find some stuff there, and maybe that adds up a little bit. But when you're talking about wanting to make this a big chunk of, of how we can fund Kerwin, the big numbers, like you just said, you know, we don't tax medicine, we don't tax medical supplies, that's 550 million. We also, Michael, don't tax groceries. Oh, another one. 737 right. million. So, so, so right like, there, it's a lot of okay. money, but. Right, well, that would be a whole lot of money sure. for Kerwin. And if you want to, for the moment, I mean, I don't think I don't think this is the kind of stuff that Speaker Jones no, is talking about. No, but this is the these are but, the big numbers. But I think yeah, it, it would it's a caution for anybody who who wants to set sail and say close the loopholes is where it's at, because it doesn't take long going through the list to discover the real money is in stuff that we would notice and feel and probably object to. So, you know, I mean, you want to apply the sales tax to everybody's groceries, you can do that, and that'll probably bring in hundreds of millions of dollars. But if you map that out as to where it is on the regressive versus progressive scale, who's that going to be affecting the most? Who's going to feel that pinch the most? That's going to be an unsettling analysis. And there's a reason why we don't apply the sales tax to medicines and to groceries. There's a reason why we don't apply the sales tax to products that are intermediate in the the manufacturing pipeline. We don't we don't we don't charge a sales tax on the part when the final product is going to be taxed itself. Right. Um, Europe does that with a value added tax. That's a totally different model. You theoretically could do that and stack these things up. We don't, and there's good reasons for that. Sure. So you know, another one we don't tax you know electricity for folks for residential use. That's 415 million. But I think people get the idea. The big Big numbers where you could really get a lot of money, you know, out of our, our deductions and our tax policy. There are things that I don't think you'd want to, to do. They're not necessarily loopholes. There's it's tax policy for a reason. So I don't I agree with you. I don't think this is what Speaker Jones was talking about, but we thought it would be beneficial to dig in. And maybe you can find, like we said, around the edges, maybe you can you can get a little bit nip and tuck here and there, but this is not going to be 
the 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 solution of of how we're going to fund Kerwin, or at least a significant part of Kerwin, even not going to happen, right? So, so I mean, yeah. If 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 you if you left the Mako conference feeling like, all right, I think I just heard the solution, and the solution is we'll pay for Kerwin by closing loopholes, and nobody's ox is going to get gored. That's going to be maybe part of the solution to find a nip and a tuck and a twist here, but that's not going to be your two billion dollars. It's just not going to happen. Another, another, you know, couple of items people talk about when we talk about funding schools, cannabis, and sports betting, and, right, and so we want to set the expectations here as well, Michael. I mean, you know, there's a commission meeting right now dealing with cannabis revenue. We know that those revenues are relatively unstable. I mean, even if you say we could bring in 150 million a year, much less for sports betting. I mean, you and I know casinos are very good at setting odds. So look, you're not going to make a ton of money there. That's not going to get us there either. So if you're thinking, okay, if we nip and tuck around and we close these loopholes and the tax exemptions plus cannabis plus sports betting, that should get us a good chunk of the way. That's also not going to be the case. So, so, so then, I mean, what you're, what we're seeing shaping up is still basically what we talked about in the middle of April, you know, a week or two after session ends Mm -hmm. and they've dropped the confetti and people like us are reading these session end reports. We're reading the fine print of all the bills that passed and looking at the blueprint bill that passed. And we find this magic sentence in the back of that bill, which is the legislature telling the Kerwin commission, give us a 10 year plan, not a four year plan. That's, that's dressed up as a 10 year plan. Right. So, so originally it was, yeah, you know, it, it was all built up. You, by you get almost four. all the money in the first three, four five years. Right. So if the legislature is saying, we think we can do close to 4 billion, but we need it in chunks that are something like 400 a year. Oh, okay. Well, that starts to make sense, right? You can do 400 a year. They're debating what, if anything, they want to offload to county governments, but whatever piece is left for the state to shoulder itself, you tend to have some revenue growth anyway, just from ordinary growth in the economy. Uh, Maybe you do go out and you do some licensing for adult use cannabis if the voters go for that. Um, maybe if the voters go for sports wagering, that gets you another revenue source that has a state, has a state component. Okay. Those things can fuel the first year or the first couple of years. Maybe you find some, some nicks and dents and twists and turns in your tax code and you find $150 million or something like that. Okay. Maybe that helps you afford another incremental year. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's the nature of the path that's starting to emerge. If you're seeing a dashed line through the forest that gets you to the X marks a spot on the other end of the map, it looks like that. It looks more like we'll do this a small bit piece at a time without a giant tax increase and we'll sort of nickel and dime a few revenues without doing something that would be Outrageous. Now, Michael, like, we, yeah. we do have to say that's not going to be easy to explain to some of these advocates who are all in and they want this all right now. And that's what they heard before, right, was we're going to ramp this up. It's going to be all the money up front. This will mean that some of these recommendations are most likely going to have to wait until later. And that's going to be a, a complicated, you know, that's that's where the policymaking right. comes in. That's where the, the politicking comes in. But when we talk about that, we have to remember that's what that means, right? This is not going to be an easy sell to some of the folks who are really, really all in on this. So it, it'll be a political compromise. And, and if you end up with partial measures on the revenue side, no, no big, bold tax increase package 
package, but instead, you know, a nibble here and a nibble there and a new revenue source there and that sort of to do part of it. What that also means is invariably, it will mean pressure on the rest of the budget. So this is, this becomes pay as you go, like Thornton and that squeezes everything else. Right. And so, I mean, you know, we at the county level, we have our grievances that we feel like our road money was a victim to Thornton. We feel like the teacher pensions got shifted to counties so the state could continue to fund Thornton. Um, the same thing applies here. If you're state employees who have gotten, you know, peasant wage increases for the last decade, the next decade looks the same. Um, if you're, you know, the, all the, these vacancies in the state correction system Big where deal. they say they need to hire more COs, that's going to be right up against this. There's not going to be much cash to go around. If Kerwin is going to be priority number one, uh, we've already you know, promised through the constitutional amendment that we're going to be funding more education, passed the bill this year already that has some components funded. Right. I mean, we're already seeing the pieces fall into place, but if that's the long-term plan, the non-education parts of the state budget are going to feel it. And it's going to be our health departments. It's going to be our local roads and police aid and all other things like that. Broadband, that, opioids, yeah, right, you name yeah, it. Right. I mean, all the things, you know, we're, we're here speaking to some degree from the county point of view because this is the MAKO podcast and we're thinking about MAKOs and county government's priorities. But, I mean, if, if what you really love are the parks or the state parks or, you know, whatever, like all the other things in the budget get the squeeze when the plan is is the amorphous, we'll figure it out as we go. And that means lots of budget reconciliation bills. And this year we need to hack $240 million. And that means more squeeze on your providers, your nonprofit providers to, to, you know, healthcare communities and so forth. It's just this whole laundry list of different things, um, more of the same. So whatever you care about, if you are down in Annapolis and you're trying to get funding, Regardless of whether or not you care about Kerwin, you should be paying attention, right? Because all of this is going to affect every other item in the budget. It's going to be much harder to fund a lot of important things that a lot of people care about. And this is not, oh my gosh, we need to go out and raise taxes. It's not sexy like that. It's not going to be the big headline grabber. But it's important for people to understand less, though, constituents are going to understand why we have to cut this, why we have to cut that. I think it's, it's, a, it's a tougher sell and it's, it's harder for people to understand in the long run. Yeah, I think that's that's all basically true. So if Kerwin is not your racket, it still might be your racket because yes. you are going to be affected by the wake. Um, but if Kerwin is your racket, then you got to get to the meeting this week. We're recording on Wednesday, so as we as we're speaking tomorrow, Thursday looks to me like the big day. Sure. Um, the agenda that they've published, we've put it on the Mako blog, and it's on the Kerwin website. But the agenda they've published looks like it's going to be a deeper dive into the 10-year spending plan with a clearer and sharper analysis of money that could be saved by repurposing from one thing to another. That's been sort of a hazy part of this this arithmetic. I think we'll see more on that. And then the second half of the day looks like a deeper analysis into things like the wealth formula, distribution to counties, the maintenance of effort program, all these different things that get into the state and county stuff. I think this is where 
the the shoals get a little bit rockier and the waves get a little choppier and the group is going to need to roll up its sleeves and start realizing this is tricky it's complicated they've got they've got a big task ahead of them we're going to see a lot of sheets of paper to turn sideways tomorrow i was going to say that's what we've been looking forward to <laughs> a lot of those terms you just referenced we have been speculating about and talking about for a long time on this podcast so michael hopefully we'll we'll come away from that with some more information and we can come back next week and and talk about it well so far what we've been trying to do is take the presentations that have been given to the work group and we're trying to interpolate from that the direction we think they're going so that's I don't know whether that's crystal ball or reading tea leaves. Probably more like the reading of tea leaves. We look at the residue of the meeting. We come away with what we think it means. It's probably a fair analogy. Um, this hopefully should get closer and closer to somebody actually like painting a target and saying, this is the direction we're going. Here are the three or four policy options. I'm thinking after tomorrow we'll have a better, better idea. We will see. And we will leave it there for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a like, subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode. It'll come right to you as soon as we put it out. But until next week, Michael and Kevin signing off. We'll keep you updated on Kerwin, and we'll talk to you soon.